Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week we read Isaiah 9, 1-7, which celebrates the arrival of a righteous king to restore the people. We talk about the anxiety of walking in darkness and the joy that comes when dawn finally breaks. We discuss the experience of oppression, bearing the yoke of hard labor and the rod of the stern ruler. And we contrast that with the arrival of a new king who breaks the rod and who bears authority on his own shoulders. And we talk about the promise of that new ruler, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and wrestle with the significance both in Isaiah's time and in our own. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am good. Guess what we're thinking about doing. It is ill-advised. That's your hint. <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. All the things that I can imagine your family doing. What are doing the ill-advised, ill-advised things that my family might be doing? We might take another foster dog. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that a couple of weeks ago, and then I, we just didn't do it. But you are fostering all kinds of dogs we fo- back a few yeah. months ago. Yeah, well, we fostered dogs for a series of dogs for like a year. And it was my daughter's bat mitzvah project. Like you have to, you know, serve the community in some way. And so that's how we started doing it. Oh. And it was mostly really fun. But the last dog was like psychotic. Yeah. That was the one (laughs) that was like an older dog who hated Will. It was an older dog who did not like any of the males in my house. And they basically couldn't come into the living room for seven months. And it was really hard to get her adopted because, you know, we wanted to be honest with people because if they adopt her and then don't want her and bring her back to a shelter, she's just back where she started. So it was hard to place her, blah, blah, blah. But now here we are just like a month later and I'm like, oh, that one's so cute. (laughs) But I don't even like dogs. I don't know what's the matter with me. (laughs) Yeah. This is the part that I've never quite understood is you don't like, in, in general, you do not like dogs like as a concept. Yeah. But like the individual dogs that you have had, I feel like have been, you've enjoyed them. I, uh, it's, I don't know what, I don't know how to explain this. I don't know. I don't have any words for my feelings about dogs. I don't like (laughs) noise. I don't like being licked. I don't like fur. I certainly don't like poop on the floor. Yeah. There's like nothing about, I don't want to interact with any dog in any way, (laughs) but they are cute. Yeah. And it's a good thing to do, and it's, I don't know. So it's more about the compassion, like, there are animals who need someone to treat them well, and more than it is about, like, dogs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would like to get them their own apartment. If I had enough money, I would do that. <laughs> if you would like to help apartment hunt for dogs. <laughs> That's right. That's what I'm going to do with my riches. Care of Bible worm. <laughs> Well, that's very exciting. I have a song in my head that I was singing this morning with my daughter, and it goes like this. <laughs> Who's wait. got the tootie and the tootie boots? 
Amy's got what? the tootie and the tootie boots. What? What does that mean? It's about tooting. <laughs> In boots? No, your tootie boots. It's like your behind. It's my tootie boots. Did you make that song up? Well, it's Kustola the Cookie from the Cookie Jar, but yeah. Tootie boots? Do normal people not say tootie what boots? What is the world coming to? Like if, if your kid farts, you say like, you got a tootie boots. You don't <laughs> you know people no. don't say that? And then you don't. turn it into a song. Who's got the tootie and the tootie boots? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, It'll stick in your, you'll be singing that all weekend. I can't wait. And everyone I will spend time with this weekend thanks you in advance for that. Yeah. Thank you. Well, transitioning from there to <laughs> the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah. Who probably did not have tooties in his tootie boots. No, but boots come up in this portion. And they I have do. a lot of questions about like the history of boots and when oh, people started Lord. wearing them. So I hope you've researched that. <laughs> I have not researched the history of boots, but I can talk about tootie boots a, like a lot. We talk about that a lot in my house. Literally all the time. <laughs> all right amy so uh we have as you know moved into the prophetic texts for the f- rest of the fall till we get into advent and then part of advent and here last week we were in the prophet amos this week we are in isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 and this is what's often called first isaiah Isaiah yeah. as a book, as a prophetic book, kind of exists in either two or three parts, first, second, third mm-hmm. Isaiah, mm-hmm. which come from different historical periods. This is the first one of those. Mm-hmm. What should we know just by way of historical context, prophet Isaiah? How do we get ready mm-hmm. to read this passage other than just like some words that exist in, you know, without any floating context. around in, yeah. in the space time continuum somewhere? Yeah. So. So first Isaiah usually refers to like chapters one to 39 or Mm -hmm. so. Isaiah uh, was a prophet in, at least first Isaiah was a prophet around the eighth century. And during that period of time, Assyria, one of the neighboring powers, was really growing in influence and power and putting some pressure on the small kingdoms nearby, including Judah um, and Israel, to be basically become vassals in some way to like accept Assyria as their overlord, yeah. pay them some money and, you know, sort of exist a little bit under their thumb. Yeah. And so there was this, there was always this question of whether they should just go along with it because Assyria seemed pretty powerful and maybe this was the easiest way to deal with the situation or to revolt against that. Yeah. Forming some other kind of strategic alliance, often with Egypt to, to be able to stand up to Assyria. Yeah. Uh, the Northern Kingdom tried to stand up to Assyria, and it did not work, and they fell in the yeah. year 722. Yeah. And so for Isaiah, Isaiah's in the south, in Judah, mm-hmm. and the pressing question, or a pressing question for him is, to what extent should the Judeans attempt to confront their enemies using alliances with other countries? Yeah. And to what extent should they just trust in God and yeah. rely on God to protect them? Yeah. Uh, and Isaiah thinks the latter. Rely on God. I think that's right. Yeah. That's so. That's such helpful context. And, you know, if, if you're listening and 
Assyria is not in your <laughs> worldview. Yeah. Assyria <laughs> is different than Syria. Yeah. Syria is just to the sort of north and east of Israel, a little bit to the east of Israel. Assyria is all the way over in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates. It's sort of southern sister is Babylon, who you've surely heard about if you're a Bible reader. Assyria mm -hmm. was a power a little bit before Babylon rose to power in the 8th and first half of the 7th century. And that's super helpful context. I remember with our old professor, John Hayes of Blessed Memory, talking about the Syro-Ephraimite crisis, mm -hmm. uh, which was the northern kingdom, Israel, which is sometimes called Ephraim, and then the Syrians, who banded together to revolt against Assyria. And that's what ends up eventually in 722 or thereabouts getting Israel and Samaria totally destroyed. But he would always talk about that as the as SPAC, the Syro-Palestinian Anti-Assyrian right. Coalition. SPAC. Right. And the question pressing on Judah was, should we join SPAC or should we not? And Isaiah's yeah. advice was, do not, do not, do not join SPAC. Yeah. And it turns out to have been exactly right about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whether, yeah. whether rely on God or pay your tribute loyally to Assyria was the solution there is a matter of some dispute. But mm. theologically, anyway, uh, rely, on, rely on God seems to be the, the takeaway. When you mentioned John Hayes, who, uh, maybe some listeners have read some of, some of his writings. I don't know, John Harrelson Hayes. But he, um, he, he was good to his students, and mm. he knew that we were poor and hungry all yeah. the time. And he would bring moon pies to class. Moon so just pies. the mention of his name. I mean, moon pies are some nasty. I mean, I do not like moon <laughs> yeah. pies. But I surely did eat them during They somehow tasted good in his class, though, didn't they? Three-hour seminars. It, like, makes my teeth hurt to think about it. But <laughs> I ate a lot of moon pies. Yeah. And they had mostly been, like, sitting in a box drinks. in the back of his car for, like, weeks. I mean, they, they probably could survive, like, a nuclear meltdown. Yeah. Uh, I think pie. that's right. Yeah. So this text that we're reading today in Isaiah chapter 9, do you have a sense of where it fits? I, I, his, the, like, where do you place it contextually, historically, is a matter of some dispute. And so I just want to mm -hmm. say that up front. Do you have a sense of where we are in relation to all this SPAC and, you know, destruction of Samaria and all those kinds of things? I don't know if I do have a very good sense of it. Yeah. I mean, do, do you... I mean, I could try to make some stuff up, but if you have a, <laughs> you may have a, your feet on the ground a little better here. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's disputes about this text in scholarship, of course. I mean, there's a dispute about like Every <laughs> literally text. everything. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. I think that we are either in the midst of this sort of Syria Ephraimite war, or at least the Assyrian crisis, or we have just poked our heads out the other side. Um, so Samaria has been destroyed, maybe, and Judah has survived, or mm -hmm. else we're sort of in the middle, and this is a word of hope about what is mm -hmm. going to come. This text has been read as a coronation hymn for the good king Hezekiah, or mm -hmm. sometimes it has been read as a celebration of the birth of Hezekiah, and depending on which of those you might read places us slightly differently. Not everybody agrees it even has anything to do with Hezekiah. But yeah. I think a helpful way of thinking about this is wh where you were setting us up. There is an international military crisis that is threatening Judah or has been threatening Judah. This passage either is 
giving people hope right in the midst of that or sort of just on the other side saying, oh, like literally, thank God we made Mm -hmm. it through that and now Mm -hmm. something else is possible. So it's Mm -hmm. in that transition from like the world is falling apart to there is possibility in the world, something like that. And even just between those two things, I feel like that's just a world of difference. Yeah. But that's, but yeah, that those are the worlds we straddle. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's right. And one of the things that my teacher, Walter Brueggemann, likes to talk about is one of the tasks of prophetic proclamation is to articulate a vision for what life could be like on the other side of the crisis, mm-hmm. even while you're in the midst of the crisis. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. you have no vision for the possibility on the other side, you don't have any strength to make right, a Right, it's hard to endure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's true. So they are completely different. And yet in the middle of crisis, one needs to be able to anticipate and imagine, create the possibility of a different Mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. The only other thing that I think might be worth saying is just Christian listeners will recognize this passage immediately as Mm -hmm. being one of the common Advent slash Christmas passages. Mm -hmm. And all I want to say up front, I think, is my take Our take, I think, is that we ought to try first to read this text contextually within its context in ancient Israel in the 8th century BCE. And what was Mm -hmm. it doing then? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then we can think about like, okay, well, then what does it do later in the Christian Mm -hmm. period? What does it do? I don't know, maybe in rabbinic interpretation. What does it do now? So Mm -hmm. we're going to spend the first chunk of the podcast just dealing with this text as an 8th century Yeah, we're in the 8th century. Text. Mm -hmm. And then we are going to sort of, at least I am, (laughs) I don't know about you, we are then going to say like, well, so then what do we do with that if we do read it through the lens of the New Testament or if we do read it through other lenses? So And while you sing that, um, while you do that, I'm going to sing Handel's Messiah gently in the background. Yeah. (laughs) I love this detail about you that you love to sing Handel's Messiah. (laughs) I do. I do. Always looking for excuses. Yeah. All right, so I think we're just going to read 9-1 and talk a little bit about that, and then we will get into the poem. Yeah, that sounds good. And if if we have readers who are using um, a GPS translation, what is 9-1 in most Christian translations in the NRSV is actually 8-23, the last verse of the previous chapter in in the JPS. And it does seem pretty different in... Tone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in the Christian translation, we're in 9-1 to 7. In the Jewish translation, we're in 8-23 to 9-6. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. All right, this has given us some geographical context, at least, for the poem that we're about to read. Mm -hmm. What is your takeaway from that first verse about the stage that is being set? (laughs) My takeaway, I actually want to read you the note in my study Bible, because it's, uh, (laughs) this is my takeaway. (laughs) An unusually obscure verse. The Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser seized lands belonging to the tribes Zebulun and Naphtali, 
along with parts of the Galilee and Transjordan, from the Israelite king Pekah, son of Remaliah, in the aftermath of the Syro-Ephraimite crisis. That is dense. (laughs) Yeah. So I think my brain sort of shut down after I read that, and I was like, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually, like, the short version of that takeaway, if I understand it, is we have just been through some stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I can get down with that, yeah. And so people were in anguish, and there will be no gloom, right? And so we're in the transition from this crisis that has taken place to some other post-crisis something. I think if I were preaching this text, you know, if I was, if that was my job, I would just start in verse two. Yeah. Is what I think I would do. Cause I, I find this verse <laughs> kind of, I think the, uh, I think the chapter break in the Hebrew text, yeah. which is different than in the Septuagint, which is what the NRSV is following the Christian versification. I think it's a better chapter break. Uh, yeah. And I would just leave this verse out if I had to, but given that yeah. the verse is in the text unit, I think my takeaway from it is simply this has been a really trying time and a lot has happened to places very close to us. Yeah. And it has been a time of gloom, but uh, there is a better time coming. And that does set us up. That does set us up well for what comes because, you know, all these, the, the section before this that we're not reading is really gloomy. Yeah, it's really you know it really leans hard into that the darkness that that they're going to emerge from in the next verse. So, yeah. all right, yeah. let's emerge from the darkness, shall we? <laughs> okay. In verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as people exult when dividing plunder. Okay, you note often that we have shifted in the prophets into poetic texts and that we read poetic texts differently. Can you just reflect for a moment on like how how to read poetry or how to read this poetically anyway? I mean, I think... When I am encountering poetry, and I will admit that I, you know, I I sat down to try to study this text yesterday afternoon and I had, you know, I knew I wouldn't finish it, but I had a short bit of time and it was like something I wanted to check off on my to-do list. Yeah. It doesn't work very (laughs) well that way. (laughs) So what I, one of the things I do when I'm reading poetry is to really try to sit with some of the primary imagery that's pulled up or metaphors pulled up. And just pause for a minute and say, like, what is the full resonance? What is every association I can come Mm. up with, with darkness and light and harvest? And then how are those things similar? And how are those things different? And like to, some of it is just an exercise to slow myself down, but you have to slow way down. Yeah. Slow down reading poetry. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about the text units we've had previously and it was, you know, like, 20 or 30 verses of text that we sometimes mm-hmm. talk about. And I'm, I was, you know, this is seven verses. And, but when you slow down, those seven verses absolutely can occupy a lot, a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the characteristics I think we might've mentioned last time of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. 
Mm-hmm. And so we have synthetic parallelism in which the line basically repeats uh, the same thing that was said before. And then you have anesthetic parallelism in which the second line sort of gives you the opposite image of the first one. There's all kinds mm-hmm. of different versions of this, but that's kind of the characteristic of Hebrew poetry. And you mm-hmm. see it really, really nicely here, especially in that in verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. I think this is probably one of the most famous lines of the Bible. It's just such a rich image. And in the first line, you get darkness, walking in darkness. Mm-hmm. Second image is an image of light. When you think about that sort of parallelism and that contrast that's being drawn there, like where does your mind go as you ponder that, those images? You know, it's so interesting because I feel like in some ways, and I don't know if it, it is because of this this verse or the the sort of fame of this verse or yeah. if it comes from somewhere else, but it's it's like it's a given to me what sort of darkness and light mean in this situation. And so I really had to stop and say, like, what do you get from turning on a light yeah. when you've been in the dark? Like mm, you I like get that. Because presumably, whatever was in the room when it was dark is still in the room when it was light and vice yeah. versa. So mm. what is really the difference Yeah, when, there's, when you have light? So I came up with, like, awareness, clarity. Yeah. Maybe you have your bearings about you. Maybe yeah. it's less scary because there are fewer unknowns. You're less, you feel less vulnerable. I, I don't know that. if that's, but I don't know if that's where this is actually leaning because yeah. all of those sort of ideas connect to this idea that like you, you have more control when the light is on, like yeah. you have a better ability to protect yourself. And I don't think that's necessarily what Isaiah is trying to get to. So maybe yeah. I have to back it up a little bit from that. Amy, I really love that. I think that gets something really important that I had missed. And I also think that there is more that one can, that one can get. Yeah. But to, to me, the sort of first resonance of you're walking in darkness, like when it is dark out, like this is an image of night, right? And in yeah. the ancient world, like the night is very vulnerable. There's not street yeah. lights, you know, yeah. there's not emergency call boxes. If you see something suspicious, uh, you don't have a flashlight. And so the night is vulnerable. And, you know, so to say you've been walking in darkness, you've been walking at nighttime, you've been vulnerable to what's around you, and now the light is coming. So here's a, you know, a relief of vulnerability in some way. But I love what you're saying about, you know, also revealing what was already there. It reminds me of, like, my kid watches Daniel Tiger a lot, and there's this one, Daniel Tiger, where there's, like, I don't know, it's like Daniel has his little, like, lizard doll or something, mm-hmm. but it it casts, a, like, a really scary shadow um, because of the moon or whatever, and so he turns on the light, and they sing this little song that says, see what it is, you might feel better. <laughs> that's what that reminded me of. So you like you it's just your like little yeah. dinosaur or your little lizard yeah. doll or whatever it is, but it's scary. And so flipping on the light, and what you were making me think of is like, you know, the theological way of reading this is God is present in the darkness, right? Mm-hmm. The the darkness need not be scary. Like it's just your lizard puppet. But <laughs> you, sometimes you need to turn on the light to reassure yourself. I really really like that. So it's not as though 
you've actually been vulnerable in the darkness. You have felt vulnerable in the darkness, but God has been present with you that whole time. I think that's really, really nice. You know, he, it's it's interesting to really like think about my own experiences of, I mean, obviously I haven't been, well, I shouldn't say obviously, I have not been in the desert. Like I haven't experienced that kind of darkness, but what are the darkest places, like literally darkest places I remember being, especially in situations where you have to keep walking. Like yeah. you don't get to just stand still. You have to walk and you cannot see where your foot is going to step. It's yeah. terrifying. Yeah. That's absolutely it really, right. It is, it's paralyzing. Yeah. It's probably worth commenting on just how you read the image of light and darkness in a racialized society Mm -hmm. where lightness and darkness have all kinds of implications for power dynamics and oppressions. Yes. And I don't have a great answer. Like I have a word of caution. The image, the metaphor is a powerful metaphor and also it can be powerful in really damaging ways. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be careful about that. I don't want to lose the power of the metaphor trying to be careful, but nor do I want to cause damage by trying to keep the metaphor. I'm just going to say that as like a thing to say. And then I'm going to ask you if you have any thoughts about how to handle it or or whether we just want to leave a word of caution. I mean, I think probably a word of caution. I mean, certainly that's, that's, it's important to name. And in some ways, like if we really take this all the way back to the idea of like, you're in a space surrounded by darkness. (laughs) They're not talking about like a dark colored item, you know, (laughs) there. And so in some ways it's, it's that this metaphor has carried itself through to like the hero wears white and the villain wears dark and Oh wait, look, you can apply that to skin colors and like whatever that is not in here. (laughs) Right. That is not what they're talking about. But yeah, I think it is it is really important to yeah. to name just again how incredibly reverberant is that a word? I don't know if that's a word. But the the ways that this this line has just seeped into our cultural understanding of what we want and what we don't want. Yeah. Now I think that emphasis like it's not in there and yet in a racialized society yeah. it has been extrapolated out of this yes. kind of text. And so it, it yes. is in there in that sense. Yes. And so yes. we have to walk really carefully with that. Mm-hmm. Now, one other thing that's worth noting for me here is that these verbs are in the past tense. Mm-hmm. So it's not that people who have walked in darkness will see a great light or something like that. It's those who were in darkness have seen. Those who did live, the light has shined. Mm-hmm. So it seems like at least woodenly anyway, that this is referring to sort of immediate past events. Is that how you would read that? You know, it. I have to say, I guess I should enjoy this ambiguity of the poetry, but I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That there is this, it is in the past tense, and there is this phenomenon or understood phenomenon, I guess, of the prophetic past, which yeah. sort of gets to, to what you were describing earlier about a prophet talking about a time in the future where something will have happened, which basically just opens the door for saying like, either this happened or it didn't happen yet, but it will <laughs> yeah. happen, yeah. which just gives us nothing. I mean, yeah. that, that, so I, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I don't, 
I don't really like that ambiguity, Bobby. Maybe it's both. Can we call no, it? No, I yeah. You know how much I love saying it's it's both. Like I'm all about if we can find an ambiguity that you can sort of think on both sides of it. Like I, that's my happy place, and so I I really like that. As you well know, in Hebrew, you don't really have a straight up past and future. You have yeah. uh, aspects that are perfected and imperfected. Mm-hmm. And so usually you think of perfected action as being over, like it's completed. Mm-hmm. But it's possible to think of a future action being perfected, right? If that's yeah. where you get the prophetic past from. Like it is a thing so certain you can talk about it as though it has happened, even though it has not yet happened. Yeah. Or you could read this as referring to completed past action. Both of those are kind of rich in, in their own in their own way. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, it is not clear at this moment in the text who is speaking to whom. It becomes clearer in verse three, and so uh, when you when you move into verse three, you read, "You have multiplied the nation; you have increased its joy." So, yeah, that seems to be the prophet talking to God, right? I would think. So that raises kind of a genre issue. Sometimes we think of this as a prophecy, mm. but it's actually not. Right? I don't know. Maybe yeah, I'm pushing this too you, far, but no, it is not a thus says it, the Lord, right? No, it sounds more like a psalm when you put it that way. Yes. This is a, Let's yes. Let's move this to the Psalms. Isaiah <laughs> wrote a psalm. Yeah. It's so lovely. I think that's right. Isaiah is singing a, Somewhere between a praise hymn and a thanksgiving psalm. Mm -hmm. Thanking God, praising God for this thing that God has done. I don't know if that makes any difference, but it kind of seems different to me to say this is not a prophecy of the future. This is thanksgiving for God's salvific action. Yeah, that may or may not already have happened. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's in the process of happening. Yeah. 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 Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so then in this, in that continuing in verse three, you have this image of the joy of the nation being increased, like the joy of the harvest, like people dividing plunder. Yeah. More images. Where where More do you find images. a foothold in the in that those images? So again, I'm like trying to think about what what is it about harvest? Yeah. What is the thing about harvest that yeah. Isaiah is trying to capture mm-hmm. here? Is it I mean, so so my questions were like, is something metaphorically being harvested? Yeah. I don't, nothing comes to mind, but maybe. Or like the, the feeling of harvest that there is plenty, there is a sense of security yes. in your, you know, yeah. decreased vulnerability. And then thinking of those poetic parallelisms, you know, like how is harvest like light in some way? Yeah. Like how is... They both bring some sense of security and empowerment. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. What where does your where does your mind go thinking about harvest in the in this context? Yeah, no, I love everything that you just said. I think even when you look out at your window and you see your field growing and there is there is wheat out there coming up, mm. you do not know whether you're gonna have food for the winter, mm-hmm. right? You know that you have made it partway into the growing season, but there is so much left that you cannot know. The rejoicing of a harvest is we made it through the anxious time when everything was a possibility, but an uncertain one. 
And yeah. now we've got the grain and we're putting it in the barn and we can really rejoice now. Like we can be yeah. happy that there's yeah. plants coming up, right? We can be happy when the field is growing, but there is a different kind of exultation when the food is in the barn, right? Yeah. Now we're secure until next right. until next year. Right. We're going to make it another season. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in an agrarian society, like that's the thing, like all the festivals are harvest festivals, you know, like, yes. <laughs> like yeah. that's the time you, you celebrate. Yeah. I'm curious, the very last line. So you get this lovely parallelism uh, where you're rejoicing like the harvest. And then you get this third line, like people exult when dividing plunder. I'm so curious. Like <laughs> when I first read that, I wished it wasn't there. Like that was my that was yeah. my first thought was maybe we could just skip that line. You know, uh, like blackout poetry. Yeah. Like kind of like. <laughs> yeah. No, that's not there. <laughs> what do you do with the dividing plunder line? I mean, it's so interesting because Isaiah, generally speaking, is a. I mean, he's not a pacifist, certainly, but he's a justice-oriented fellow. I guess yeah. it's a different kind of justice that really sort of captures his heart. I think that if I can if I can pull back my own feelings about war and spoils and plunder and how all of that works, yeah. I think the feeling is the same. Like the anxiety of being in battle. Yes. The vulnerability, the not knowing how it's going to turn out and then looking at this moment where like you've won and you get to collect reward basically yeah it's a yeah there is a a new sense of security yeah i think that all of that's exactly right i have my wishful reading which i want to try out on you which is to say all say all of that's exactly right and and (laughs) as i start to say this i think this is not probably not right that you could read that second as as a contrast to the first one, right? So they rejoice before you as people do when they rejoice at the harvest, as people do when they divide the plunder. But I'm commending the first one to you, not the second one. So you have been through a time when people rejoiced because they were plundering you. Now you're rejoicing because you're gathering in to the barn. Mm. So is the, in that reading, the they who is exulting is it a different they? Like, has those other guys exalted? Yeah, so the people, um, Judah or whoever, is rejoicing uh-huh. before you, God, as yeah. with as like they do with the harvest, as people do when they divide the plunder. Oh, yeah. 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 So we know what that's like, but that's not what we're doing here. I'll allow it. It's a little, it's a little <laughs> bit of a stretch, but I, yeah. it is... It, but I'll allow it. The rabbis have done much crazier things in biblical <laughs> text than that. Yeah. No, I think that's one of those things in a poetic reading, you know, like Right, that. exactly. It's poetry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of Williamson wishful interpretation, but the text allows it. I don't know that the text necessarily invites it. Anyway, so I like your reading, though. Like, I think there's something to your reading, like, by itself, without, without sort of playing with it in my my way. To say, like, we know what this kind of rejoicing is like. It's anxiety about harvest, anxiety about the outcome of the battle. And this is what you do at the conclusion of that. That's the kind of yeah. rejoicing we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that yeah. probably is enough there. Yeah. I 
feel a little surprised in some way, the extent to which in these couple of verses, it's like not more God facing, if that makes any sense. Like yeah. it, it seems like it's it's about, I mean, God has magnified the nation yeah. and brought them joy. And it says the people rejoice before God. So God yeah. is in there, but it really I don't know. I guess I would have expected more emphasis on the fact that uh, the people truly are vulnerable, but for God's intervention. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, I want to, I'll be curious what you think about that as, as we go. As we go on. Because mm-hmm. I do take your point, though. You know, it's addressed to God, right? So you multiplied, you increased. Therefore, they mm, rejoice. That's true. That's true. So in that sense, it's saying like, good yeah, job, the rejoicing God. that you see is because of this thing that you did. Yeah. yeah. But at the yeah. same time, the rejoicing could be read as a little bit like separated from. And I mean, maybe that's one of the things like maybe that's a part of this passage, too, is, you know, rejoicing has to be contextualized. And it would it would be easy to just rejoice because the harvest came in. Right. And to forget that the harvest came in because God increased the harvest. Right, right. So there, there might be a that might be instructive in that way. Yeah, that's where we get turned around every time, Bobby. Mm. Hey, everybody, it's Bobby here. I hope you're enjoying this free episode of the Bible Worm podcast. Bible Worm is made possible by a generous group of supporters who make a monthly contribution through our Patreon page. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support our work, you can join our Patreon community for as little as four dollars per month. At higher levels, you can receive added benefits like early episodes, membership in the Bible Worm Collaborative Discussion Group, and more. One of my favorite levels is the Bible Study Worm level, where you receive a 25-minute video lesson from me each week that can be used for your own personal study or for a group, study, or class that you are a part of. You also receive five discussion questions each week that can help guide a small group discussion. Bible Study Worm members also receive early episodes, membership in the Bible Worm Collaborative, and a free Bible Worm sticker all for just $21 a month. You can find out more at patreon.com slash Podcast. Thanks for listening. And now back to this week's episode. Okay, so picking up in verse four, the next three verses begin with the Hebrew particle key, four, mm. which if you follow sort of strategies of rhetorical criticism, a la James Meilenberg or Phyllis Tribble or Walter Brueggemann, these are key moments, right? This is like like the main thing in the poem. Get it? Key moments. Key moments. Key. I love that I didn't even think about that. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. So at the very least, we should say like the next. So why are they rejoicing? Four, yeah. right? So four, four, four. Um, these yeah. are the reasons why they're rejoicing. So I'm so glad it, you pointed that out because it's not the same in my English translation. So I would not have seen that not looking at the Oh, Hebrew. interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, verse four, for the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. Okay, there's yet one more four, but I'm going to save it because there's mm-hmm. a lot to do in verse six and seven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here are the reasons for the rejoicing like the harvest. The yoke of their burden you have broken. The boots are burned as fuel for the fire. 
connect that to the harvest imagery for me. <laughs> Ready, go. Um, you know, that's... Okay, I don't think this is what you were going for. <laughs> but I had been thinking of, before you asked that question, I had been thinking of the, the yoke as, um, you know, you are, you are enslaved. You are, yeah. you know, a, a beast of burden. Yeah. But when you ask specifically how it could tie to the imagery of harvest, mm. it almost is like your your burden helped to bring Ugh. the harvest. Which again, I don't know that that's what Isaiah is saying. Yeah. But a yoke is is used on an animal pulling a plow. You know, that's yeah. the the primary image of a a yoke in the real world as I know it anyway. Yeah. Is that what you were going for? No, not at all. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but I like it. My reading was the more simple-minded first reading that you offered, which, you know, is kind of the more plain sense of you have been oppressed by foreign yeah. people who have put you to labor. Yeah. They have put their yoke on you. They've put a bar across your shoulders. They have used the rod on you. And God has broken all those things. Yeah. And so you are free. Yeah. But I love where you went with it, although it's not the first place I would go and not probably like the primary sense of the poetry. But there's something really lovely about saying you have been burdened by your oppressor, which was a terrible thing, and and you're rejoicing because it's over. Mm -hmm. And also the labor that you did has led to a bountiful harvest. There's something really, really nice about that that I want to play with a little more in my in Yeah, my I feel like I need to like mo- it's like it's like clay, like I want to play yeah. with it and and see, I don't know, see where it goes. Yeah. yeah there are things that come out of your oppression that are that are good things even though your oppression was a bad thing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so it doesn't necessarily have to be you have brought about like you are responsible for your own freedom because you know in in this text it would say that god is responsible for that yes but but you but you can have participated in bringing about something something good yeah yeah i really like your description of the you know the sort of bar across their back and and that kind of abuse and servitude because it it's it takes it sort of to another level compared to what the other text was. Like the text before this was you were vulnerable and insecure and maybe afraid and you know didn't have your bearings. And then this this is like a whole other level and you were yeah trapped and you yeah. were weighed down and you were yeah you know abused and beaten and yeah harmed. Yeah. Which is which is different than just being in the darkness. Yeah. You, know, you could sit in the darkness and feel scared, but be fine in body. Yeah. No, I th- that's such an important observation. And I still think that what you were saying earlier still holds, which is if you could turn on the light, lift mm-hmm. the veil, mm-hmm. you would see that God is with you even in all of that. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make it any easier. Like, yeah. The oppression you're experiencing is still oppression. 
And also, if you could see what's behind the scenes, you would know God is present with you still. I think all of that kind of gets held together in a, in a really interesting way here. Can I tell the story of the day of Midian? Yeah. <laughs> I love this story so much. Um, so I think that uh, what Isaiah is referring to is from Judges chapter 7 and 8, which mm-hmm. is when Gideon, which rhymes with Midian, but <laughs> that does. has no real meaning. Uh, <laughs> Gideon is leading um, an army to go and, and take over this Midianite city. And God keeps telling him, you have too many troops. I want you to go in with fewer troops so that it will be really stinking clear yeah. that you only prevailed because I made this happen. If you go in with 10,000 troops, you, you or someone else is going to think that you did this by your own power. Yeah. So Gideon says, fine. He like sends a bunch of people home and God says, no, you still have too many. So the way that God decides who actually should go to war is he says, bring your remaining, however many, I don't know, thousand, I don't know, soldiers to the creek and tell them to drink some water. And some of them will get down on their knees and lap it up like a dog. And some (laughs) of them will like scoop it up with their hands or something like that. Yeah. And God chooses the lappers. Yeah. The 300 of them who lapped up the water like a dog. Yeah. That is such a funny story. I just love that story. That, we read that in my intermediate Hebrew class. And I still yeah. remember the professor climbing up on the table to demonstrate how they were lapping up <laughs> the water. That is awesome. Yeah, I good. love that. Mm-hmm. My favorite part after that bit about that story is then when they go into battle, the 300 of them. <laughs> They only take like trumpets and clay pots, yes. right? And they, yes. they blow the trumpets and they smash their pots and the Midianites like freak out and kill each other. Correct. <laughs> so that is right. That awesome is exactly story. right. They don't even have weapons. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So you broke the oppression of Assyria, presumably, just mm-hmm. like you did the oppression of the Midianites back there in the book of Judges. Right. You set them in disarray. Yeah. And like in that story, there is no question who did it. It's God did it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Then you get the image of the boots and the garments being burned as fuel for the fire. So here the it's not the spoils of war exactly. It's like the it's not the implement. It's the it's the clothing of the warriors. Yeah. is being burned. Yeah. The trappings but, of war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To me this this is part of why I read that first part as uh, that we were talking about a little bit ago as you should exalt like the harvest, not like the plunder. Mm. It's because this seems to be an anti-war image. Yeah. Like we're, we're burning all of that stuff up. And we're That's not going to be the way life is anymore. Yeah. We're going to do something different. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. I um, was surprised. I don't know. I found the presence of boots here very jarring. I don't know if I'm yeah. picturing them still wearing sandals. Like I, I was like, what do you mean boots? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. But because I came into it with that with that expectation, which may have been crazy, I don't know. I started thinking about like boots and how, like what it is to wear boots and that you, like you can crush things and you don't even feel what it is you're crushing. Like you're not impacted by sort of the violence of it at all. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. It's so strange to me that it's, the word boots that makes me think that when now we have like drone strikes, like, (laughs) yeah, but here I'm like, no, the boots are so violent, but 
I don't know. That's that's what this poem did to me, Bobby, the boots. Here's what Robert Alter says about that, just because mm-hmm. yeah. Robert Alter is interesting. The Hebrew sa'on appears only here, so we don't technically uh, know what it means. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. A possible Akkadian cognate means boot, and the parallelism with cloak argues for some item of apparel. Mm-hmm. So we think it's an we think it's a footwear. Mm-hmm. There's an Akkadian word that is similar, which I don't know what that Akkadian word is. It means boot. Pounding boots and bloodied cloaks aptly serve as metonymies for a violently advancing army. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think you are right to be curious about the presence of booted armies in the 8th century. But I think what you're saying about it is is exactly right. Yeah, the general the general point. Might not have been Doc Martens, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Doc Martin. Okay. <laughs> they're back. Versus... Did you know they're back, Doc Martens? They're always coming back. Yeah, they're back. They, they, they come back every once in a while. Come back every few years. Yeah. All the things that I would try to do to be cool are cool again. Mm-hmm. That's right. I put together a playlist a couple years ago for a student event at Hendrix, and I had all these great songs on there. And one of my students was like, you have a really great taste in music, Dr. Williamson. The only thing is, you don't mean it ironically. (laughs) (laughs) So I like all these songs, and they like all these songs, ironically. Um, I was like, that was a wake-up call for me. Last night, my 15-year-old rapped an Eminem song. Now, when I was growing up, Eminem was like, that was some hard-edged stuff, right? He rapped it in an Elmo voice. (laughs) (laughs) I took a I video. So I'll send it to I you. I love so much about that. Oh my gosh. Is it, is it going so on TikTok? Another night in Amy's house. Oh, I'm sure my daughter will try to put it on TikTok. <laughs> All right, Amy, from Elmo to. Yes, I know. A child Sorry, has been I'm born focused. to us. <laughs> so, this verse six in the Christian translation also begins with four. So, this mm-hmm, is the third mm-hmm. of the fours. So, mm-hmm. for the yoke is broken, for the boots are burned, four. Yeah. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amy, I don't even know where to start with this one mm-hmm. but the th- so the third thing for which there is rejoicing is the birth of a child yeah it is a, here also past tense a child has been born right and we there, with all that conversation about prophetic past what what do you make of this description of in the you know, we've got all of this warfare and all these things being burned and it's been night and now it's darkness. And then now we've got reference to a, a child. Yeah. What do you do with that? It's just, it's so, I'm so happy that you pointed out this, these series of key phrases yeah. so that we can see the progression of, you know, your, the end of, oppression and suffering like the end of something bad that was happening first we're talking about the end of something bad that was happening and then there's this shift to hope to promise to potential to you know the 
It's like the future, but it's not just the future because it says the child has been born, but it's still a child. So like there's like a certainty about it. It somehow lands in in like this, the overlap between certainty and potential. Yeah. You know, which is a difficult place to land a ship, but it has done that. Yeah. Yeah, this is probably, I'm sure this is heresy, but it reminds me of every year, like starting on say December, 27th you -hmm. start seeing all those images of like the beaten up old year and then the little baby new year Mm. and (laughs) there is something about that image of like a young child there is new possibility like this year is going to be better than last year and you know there is the the birth of this kid is our hope for the future and that that resonates in all kinds of ways not just baby new year but that's kind of where my uh where my head goes yeah it's also interesting that the hope for the future is a child. And so it's not just that people are still having babies, but this young kid is the hope. And our hope doesn't rest in like the experienced older folks or whatever. It, it rests in this yeah. unproven young child, whoever whoever it might be. Right. And the fact that this authority has already been settled on the shoulders of this child who clearly can't have done anything to have earned that. Yeah. Yeah. That image of authority rests upon his shoulders and you're right. It's in the past tense has been rested upon to me that there is such an interesting parallel, like in the previous images, we were beasts of burden upon whom the oppression was, Yes. Place yeah, the yoke on were, their shoulders. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The previous ruler was pushing you down. This ruler is holding up the stuff so you don't have to carry it. Like that's a lovely, lovely image. Mm, yeah. And we get this series of names in the end of verse six. In the NRSV, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I know that the JPS has a totally different translation. Yeah. You want to hear it? I do, yeah. Okay. The mighty God is planning grace, the eternal father, a peaceable ruler. So it's like in that parallelism again, sort of, right? The mighty God and the eternal father are two in parallel. And one, he's planning grace, and the other, I guess he's planning or God is planning a peaceable ruler. Yeah. I, I've always been curious what the JPS was doing there. If, if they were like, if you, if you put them in a room, you know, and sealed them away from Christian interpreters <laughs> mm-hmm. and taught mm-hmm. them Hebrew, and then like, would they translate it that way? Or is this, is this trying to say like, look, this sort of famous epithet that becomes a way of talking about Jesus is not the way this text could or should be read. I've always been curious about that. I mean, the note in my, in the Jewish study Bible says, Semitic names often consist of sentences that describe God. Mm. And so the name Isaiah means the Lord saves, Hezekiah means the Lord strengthens. And then he talks about some like Akkadian names, you know, Mm -hmm. that refer to the God Marduk and, you know, sort of what has happened. And so, so their note is, is sort of seeing this appellation similarly, that this child yeah. is named in a way that describes 
their God. There's an interesting issue. One of the Hebrew terms there is El Gabor, which means a God of war or something like that. Yeah. um, Mighty God is how the NRSV translates it. Robert Alter translates it as divine warrior. Mm. And it is a problem in the way that the NRSV has translated it because it suggests that this child is somehow God. Mm -hmm. And so the way that JPS is reading it, saying this whole sentence actually is about what God is like, Mm -hmm. makes sense of that textual issue. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you've either got to say there's a scribal issue, so it should be Gabor El, a warrior of God, instead of El Gabor, Mm -hmm. or you've got to say something. And so... So maybe that actually, like that way of reading it actually solves a problem that gets introduced if you read it the other way. Or you could say this about Jesus, which of course yeah. is what Christians are going to say. Yeah. And they're going to do it in a textually based way, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that in a minute. Any thoughts about those, however you want to translate those for Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Any thoughts about those names for this child? One thing that, at least in my translation, struck me, it has the mighty God is planning grace. Mm -hmm. And I just started thinking about, like, why plan? Like, what? I don't know. I don't think of grace as something you plan. Mm. You know, like, why not just, why not just do it? (laughs) (laughs) But I guess that sort of, again, holds us in the point of, like, it is a certainty because a child has been born, but it also takes us into, you know, future plans. Yeah. How do you think about that? In my mind, this combination. So I love the, the contrast of mighty God and Prince of Peace. Yeah. Because here you have El Gabor, like a God of warrior, you know, warrior God pr- who is a Prince of Peace. There's a lot going on in that just contrast of images. Mm-hmm. It's a peace that is grounded in strength. Yeah. A force of peace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Chooses not to exercise power in destructive ways. In destructive ways. But apparently could Mm -hmm. uh, if you wanted to. Yeah. Okay. And then this last verse, then we get the image of this kid has authority on his shoulders and that's going to keep getting bigger and bigger. And it's going to be related then to the Davidic throne, which is going to establish justice and righteousness forever. How do you read that coming out of your tradition? Like, what is what is the hope or the expectation here? I mean, I guess that the, the hope or the expectation, there is, again, it's funny, like there, there is in the Jewish community an idea of a, a Messiah king who will bring about a peaceful time. Just yeah. not a Messiah king who's also divine. Right. And who, you know, and the whole like, you know, dying and whatever, being resurrected. All that that stuff's not in there. But yeah. but the but the idea of a, a leader who can bring about who is chosen by God and can bring about peace is in there. A lot of modern Jews and or maybe I should say a lot of progressive Jews, Jews in the communities that I tend to run in. We're a little uncomfortable with the idea that it's one person. And so instead talk about a messianic era where this kind Mm. of really deeply grounded, powerful peace Mm, can 
take hold and sort of, you know, there are different traditions about things that we should be doing to help bring about the messianic era. I love that. I love that. How's it read in your tradition, Bobby? <laughs> well, I think in a, I think in its original context, this is anticipating that the king, like the prince who has literally just been born, whether it's Hezekiah yeah. or someone else in the line of David, is going to do all these things. Yeah. And so I think in the first instance, what Isaiah is saying is this child who has been born, he's going to become the king. He's going to be a good king. He's going to establish a reign of justice. And that's going to like have staying power in the line of David. I love what you're saying about that's a lot of power to put in one person. And maybe that worked in an 8th century context in which you needed one powerful king. But maybe in a 21st century context, we need Mm. to think about it differently. Yeah. In the Christian tradition, of course, this passage is understood as a prophecy of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it is a king in the line of David, but it is not a purely human king in the line of David. It is a king who is himself the the warrior god, the prince of peace, right? So the Christian interpretation doesn't have an issue with El Gabor. We say like, yep, that's Jesus, right? Right. Right, right, so, right. Because it's not a, it's not a human. It's not a. In some ways, I feel like it's, it's dealing with the same problem that the Jewish community is dealing with by saying it's a messianic era. It's not a single person because now yeah. it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know, as a Christian interpreter who is also a biblically trained s- scholar, like kind of the way that I, I tend to read it is to say the prophet Isaiah in the eighth century had in mind the establishment of a Davidic kingdom with a human king who was mm-hmm. going to establish the reign of justice on the earth. Mm-hmm. Christian interpretation then understands that prophecy to maybe also refer to or maybe instead refer to the arrival of the Messiah who is Jesus, who either has established or will establish or is in the process of establishing a, a literal reign of eternal peace, right? It's not, it's not just a human kingdom that's going to last a long time. It's a divine kingdom that is eternal in all, in all the senses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a very strong messianic reading. This this passage is a very strong messianic passage in the Christian tradition. Yeah. And so all of those meanings are kind of in this verse. And you know how you how we sort of sort that out and tease that out, I think is complicated. Sometimes people will say like like Christian interpreters who are concerned about how we read with our Jewish siblings say, this is not about Jesus. This is about Hezekiah. Like, okay. And also, Mm -hmm. it's about Jesus in our Mm -hmm. tradition, Mm -hmm. right? If you say it was just about Hezekiah, then like, okay, so it had relevance in the 8th century. Like, that was an important word in the 8th century BCE. But like, what does it have to do with us? Right. I prefer to say it was in the first instance about Hezekiah. And now it is, it still was about that. And now it is also about other things. In our tradition, it's about the arrival of the kingdom of Jesus. In your tradition, it's about the arrival of the messianic age and the people, Mm -hmm. you know, taking this responsibility. All of that kind of gets tied up together. And if you say it's this, not that, or it's not that, it can't be that, it has to be this, you lose a a lot of richness of possibilities. I think that's, I think that's really right. And I think that I appreciate the impulse to want to protect 
the historical origins of this text and sort of original resonance of it. And I think that's really important. You know, these words, you know, as we said earlier, are not floating around on the space-time continuum. And yet, if we sort of pin it down too much, I mean, you, if you do that to any of the biblical texts, then why are we even reading this? Yeah. Yeah. Because we're trying to apply these things to our lives now. Like, Isaiah's not yeah. talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but I try to make it talk to me. So, yeah, yeah I think... I think multiple possible meanings in different contexts Yeah, is how we have to read it. Yeah. All right, Amy, every time we get one of these passages, it's like seven verses long, I think. How are we possibly going to talk about seven verses for as long as we need to talk for a po- podcast? And every time we're like pushing time right at the end. Uh, and there's so much more that one could say. Yeah. I think we have said what we can say in the time that we have. And so the question that remains is, as contemporary readers of this text, and we've sort of started broaching this conversation a little bit, what do you think we can take away from this text that informs the way we live in the world now? This is one of those texts that I did not come into this conversation with anything in mind. Yeah. I think that of the things we've talked about my mind is still sort of turning over. Gosh, there's so many things. Okay, I'm going to go with this one. My okay. mind is still turning over this idea that even in times, that turning on a light doesn't fundamentally change what is around you. Mm-hmm. It changes how you feel. It changes what how you interact with what's around you. But you can be in darkness and be safe and accompanied and held you just it's just not as clear to you that you are Mm. yeah i don't know i'm 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 drawn into that the the darkness and light and what has actually changed when it became light i love that so there is some yeah i love that what is rising up for you my friend i think for me this conversation we were having right at the end Mm-hmm. is crucial. I mean, as as it would be. The context of this passage in either you have been through some stuff or you are currently going through some stuff seems really important. And what you're saying, I think, is crucial that there is like what you can see in what you're going through is not all that there is. Mm-hmm. I also think it's important that the message of this passage is God either has acted or is about to act or maybe both of those things to make this stuff you're going through into something different. Mm -hmm. You can read that personally. You can read that politically. You can read that systemically, that there is another world possible and that God is acting to make that happen. I really love where we ended up on this, like who is this son that's being talked about, this child being talked about. I think there's so much richness there. In my tradition, it's Jesus, right? Jesus is coming to set the world right. Now, in my like in my belief that is true. And also in my belief that is not all that needs to be said. Mm. That God has acted in the past to set the world right through particular people. Like you were saying God works now to set the world right through communities of people. And also God is working in the future to set the world right through Jesus in Christian belief. All of those things can be true simultaneously. 
And to say like Jesus is coming to set the world right does not mean so therefore I can sit back <laughs> and just gonna relax. Wait. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. what'd you say? Yeah, like I'm just gonna wait. Yeah. yeah. So e- yeah, either like I can sit back and relax and let Jesus do it, or like I am hopelessly mired in my terrible situation and there's nothing I can do about it. It is. It is not that. Like you're not. You're not simply waiting for a, a messianic savior. It is possible. Mm-hmm. Like God has done, can do this through particular people. And maybe there's a fuller version of that coming in Jesus. Maybe there's a fuller version of that coming in the Messianic age. But, and, we can live that out now. Mm-hmm. And so this whole thing that where we started out about part of prophetic proclamation is to say this thing that God has done in the past means God can do that again. And so the situation that we are in, no matter what it is, is not the end of the story. And we can be working toward a better future in anticipation of God also meeting us mm-hmm. in that better future mm-hmm. in whatever way in whatever way that is. I love this passage. I, I really love this passage. I love that. And I love how that fits with this part of where we started with talking about how all these steps that God takes also offer some empowerment to the people. And I said, like, does God really want to do that? I don't know if that's what Isaiah is getting at. But in terms of what you're saying about the now and the later and, you know, the ways that that good and peace can come to the world. I think I think the empowerment of the people is part of part of it. Has to be part of it. We have to claim yeah, that. I think so too. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Amy. This, as always, is a really great conversation. I I love talking about these texts with you. Good stuff. Next week we are in Jeremiah twenty nine, verse one and four to fourteen, and in the Christian calendar we are on our way. Cannot believe that this is true. We're on our way into Advent, which is the buildup to Christmas. So we're reading Jeremiah 29 in light of uh, the Christian season of Advent. Wow. At least that's one of the one of the ways we're reading it. Time flies. It so does. Very it much does. so. It does. All right, Amy. Good to talk to you. I'll see you next week. You also. I'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm you've enjoyed this free podcast we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our patreon for as little as four dollars per month you can also sign up for other goodies like early access video lectures weekly liturgies and more visit patreon.com bibleworm podcast for details bibleworm is produced by bobby williamson and edited by joel and laura becker our theme song is sung by colin bagby we're grateful to our many supporters for helping us to keep the podcast going A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporters, Jane Rowe, Aaron Frank, and Roseanne Kaufman. Join us next time when we'll be reading Jeremiah 29, 1-14, in which God instructs the exiles to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Until then, keep on digging.